all you have. We would be honored if you would join us. What's going on, my Cosmic crew? I'm your Halloween space guy, Kyle, and you are now tuned in to Star Wars Audio Archives, the only Star Wars podcast of its kind. So if you thought part one of Death Trooper was a wild ride, buckle up, because we're hitting light speed for part two. Remember when Han Solo said, I got a bad feeling about this? Yeah, that's me right now, because I'm super scared and a little bit excited about what's going to happen. Prepare for a journey wilder than the Kessel Run and more sharking than Vader's I Am Your Father moment. So are you ready to get this horrifying part started? Then let's get to it. Sartorius was deep in one of the lower maintenance levels when he realized that he simply wasn't going to get used to being here. He and Vesek were loitering in one of the secondary corridors while the engineers dug through a power substation on the other side of the open hatchway. He could hear them in there, picking through parts and tossing them back. The other guard, Austin, had gone wandering through an adjacent series of interconnected chambers, rhapsodizing about how they seemed to go on forever, and Sartorius was forced to agree with him. The vacancy of the destroyer was both disorienting and nerve-wracking. They had already walked almost a kilometer of wide-open, uninhabited gangways to get here, rounding each corner half-expecting to find the last survivor staggering toward them, cackling. So far, all they'd encountered was a menagerie of mouse droids and janitorial units, cleaning and installer droids, all going about their business as if nothing had changed. One of them, a protocol droid, a 3PO unit, had almost gotten blasted when it wandered out in front of the troopers with its hands in the air babbling senselessly. Sartorius kept thinking about what the engineer, Greeley, had said about ghost ships. Although the power was on, lights and instrument panels fully activated, there was no trace of any crew or the missing 10,000 troopers that should have been here. There was only silence, stillness, and emptiness, creaking softly around them in the void of space. You find everything we need in there, Sartorius called, hearing his voice roll down the hallway afterward. The engineers didn't answer. He glanced at Vesic. You check in with the other group? Not lately. See if you can get them to acknowledge. I want to be out of here soon. Nodding, the other guard thumbed his comlink. Armitage, this is Vesic. Do you copy? There was no response, just a crackle of static. Armitage! This is ICO Vesic. Can you hear me? Where are you guys? They both waited. Far too long, it seemed, to Sartorius, and this time Armitage's voice did respond, but it was faint, fading in and out. Medlab. Quadrant 17. I didn't copy, Armitage. Say again. In a vat. The rest was gone in a foaming tide of white noise. Vesic shook his head and looked at Sartorius. They were picking up a lot of interference from somewhere on the destroyer. The captain nodded and walked over to pound on the bulkhead next to the hatchway. Greeley, how much longer? He stuck his head in, stopped, and looked more closely. The engineers were gone. Except for a seemingly random pile of integrated components and upended packaging cartons scattered across the floor, the chamber was completely empty or at least it appeared to be. Sartorius felt a single pinhead of sweat rising to the surface beneath his left armpit and trickling down. 
The room felt too warm, air molecules compressed too closely together. Greeley, Blandings. There was no answer. A pellet-sized bubble of something, maybe fear, worked its way down his throat until it came to rest under his sternum. They're dead in there. A voice inside him gibbered. Whatever wiped out the crew, it got them too. It's already too late. Idiocy, of course. There was no sign of violence here or attack, but... Right here, Greeley said, rising up from behind one of the cartons, where he was followed in short order by Blandings. Got the last of it. He held up a slender stalk of electronic equipment, not much longer than his finger, and put it in the box he'd found. Let's roll. That's it? Sartorius hoped his voice sounded steadier than he felt. Affirmative. Primary tuning shim for a Series 4 thruster, a Thrive class. Test positive. We're a go. You're sure? Greeley gave him a long-suffering look, reserved for those who questioned his judgment of such minutiae. Yeah, Captain. I'm pretty sure. Okay. All right. Sartorius turned. Austin. Sir? The guard's voice came back from far up the corridor, more distant than Sartorius had imagined. How far away had the man wandered? Sartorius felt his anger returning, plowing over him in a red wave. Get back here now, we're moving out. Yeah, but sir? Austin still hadn't come back into the hallway. You gotta see this. It's unbelievable. I... <coughs> the words broke off with a series of short, sharp coughs, and Austin finally emerged, shaking his head and covering his mouth. Eventually, he got his breath and stopped coughing. But by then, they were already on their way back to the main hangar. And Jareth Sartoris never found out what ICO Austin had seen back there. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Armitage was an artist. Back home on Pharaoh, he delighted his younger brothers and sisters with countless air paint murals. But his talent was largely wasted in imperial corrections. If anything, his co-workers requested countless renderings of the female form, or worse, machinery. Their beloved speeders and flitters from back home. Armitage hated drawing machines. It was enough to put him off art altogether. And that was saying something for a kid who'd once dreamed of attending the Pan-Galactic Arts Conservatory on Miele Nova. Once he glimpsed what was in the destroyer's Biolab 177, however, he knew he had to paint it. He'd broken away from the troopers and the engineers, Fibes and Quartermass, down at the other end of the corridor, ostensibly to check the supply dump on sublevel 12, 
happy for any excuse to get away from them. How long were you expected to stand around complaining about the mess hall food and speculating which body parts Zahara Cody washed first when she took a shower? And if he didn't participate in this enlightened conversation, the troopers and guards started heckling him, asking what was wrong with him. Didn't he like working here? Maybe he'd be happier helping the rebels plan another of their cowardly attacks on the Empire. Checking out the biolab, no matter how boring it turned out to be, would have to be an improvement on that. But the biolab wasn't boring. The first thing Armitage noticed as he'd stepped through the hatchway was the vat. In many ways, it was the only thing he saw, because after that, he simply stopped looking. Its contents were simply too overwhelming and, in a bizarre way, too beautiful to get past. The vat itself was huge, wall-sized, filled with some sort of clear bubbling gel. Suspended inside were dozens of oddly shaped pink organisms with wires and tubes running from them to a bank of humming equipment stacked beside the tank. Armitage, who had already stopped in his tracks, could only regard them in wonderment. From a distance, the pink things looked like an unlikely hybrid of flowers, peeled fruit, and some species of embryonic winged animal whose like he'd never seen. They resembled a flock of tiny, skinned angels. Then he came closer and realized what he was looking at. They were sets of human lungs. If he felt any tremor of disgust, it flicked through him so fleetingly that he scarcely noticed, and was supplanted immediately by a deeper and more fulfilling sense of artistic fascination. In each set, the entire respiratory tract had been carefully winnowed out to preserve the trachea, and above it, the larynx, and all the more delicate organs of sound. Tubes were pumping oxygen into the lungs, causing them to expand and contract in their clear liquid bath. Armitage realized they were all breathing together. He counted 33 pairs of lungs in the vat before he gave up and stopped counting. Each was tagged with numbers and dates, part of some abandoned scientific experiment whose nature he could only guess at. Some of the lungs were different. Their pink surface had gone a mottled gray in places. The muscle wall thickened with what looked like gray scar tissue. Armitage moved closer. He was no longer aware of himself at all now, and stared at them. Were they breathing more rapidly, or was that just his imagination? And was he breathing with them? It felt as though he'd been drawn into the larger, almost hypnotic tidal rhythm of their movement. As always, when faced with something so innately striking, his first wish was to paint it. To capture what he saw in front of him. Not just the lung bath, not a bad name for a painting, he thought. But the emotion he'd felt when he'd realized what he'd been looking at. Awe. Shock. And ultimately a kind of unconscious familiarity, like something he'd once glimpsed in a dream. He watched them sucking oxygen through tubes and realized they were breathing more quickly and deeply. Somewhere on the other side of the vat, a machine beeped and beeped again. Looking at them more closely, Armitage noticed for the first time the sets of rubber tubes that came braiding out of the lungs themselves. They seemed to be pumping some kind of thick gray fluid to a group of black tanks on the far side of the lab. Lights flickered over the distant shoals of monitoring equipment on the other side of the vat. 
The lungs swelled and shrank, swelled and shrank, faster and faster. Suddenly, at full inspiration, they stopped. And as one, they screamed through the tubes. It was a high buzzing shriek that rose up and then sloped down, and it sent Armitage staggering backward with its intensity. Never in his life had he heard such a scream. He covered his ears, ducked his head, not wanting to be around this place anymore. The comlink in his headpiece crackled. Some other guard's voice trying to reach him, and he could hardly convey what was happening. He wanted to run. Inside the vat, the screaming noises shrilled on up and down. The gray liquid was pumping faster now, siphoned off to the black tanks. Armitage realized that each one of the voice boxes had been wired with some kind of amplifier, making it even louder. And he wondered who was studying the scream capacity of these lungs and why. Behind him, a set of monitors showed the waveform of the scream, mapping it out as a series of mathematical functions. He turned to the door and realized he wasn't alone. I don't get it, Cap, Vesic said. Where'd they go? Sartoris's party had just crossed the gleaming steel prairie of the main hangar and arrived back at the docking shaft, but Armitage and his team were nowhere to be seen. Behind him, the captain heard Austin coughing again. The snotty, bronchial hacking noise was really starting to get on his nerves and decided enough was enough. He cocked one thumb at the shaft. Must have gone back down without us, Sartoris said. Let's go. Vesic and Austin climbed back inside onto the waiting lift, and Sartoris went in after them, followed by Greeley and Blandings with a box of scavenged components. The shaft sealed behind them, and the platform began its slow descent. Austin kept coughing. Sartoris tried to ignore him, he was going to have to report back to the warden about the Star Destroyer and wasn't looking forward to it. No doubt Cloth would have all kinds of irrelevant questions about the ship and what they saw up there. Every minute of it, an endurance test for Sartoris's patience. Asking unnecessary questions was one of the warden's nervous tics when he felt pressed to make a decision and... Oh no, Greeley said. Sartoris glanced up. What's wrong? The engineer started to say something, then dropped the box of parts, clutched his stomach, and bent over with a hoarse croak. Sartoris realized the man was throwing up, shoulders clenching in great involuntary spasms. Blandings and the other guards all backed away from him, muttering with surprise and disgust. But there wasn't much room in the shaft, and within seconds the smell had filled it entirely. I'm sorry, Greeley said, wiping his mouth. Lousy mess hall food. You can't... Just stay there. Sartoris held up his hands. You can get cleaned up when we get back to the barge. I feel fine. I, I just... The engineer swallowed and took in a deep breath. His eyes and nose were streaming tears, and Sartoris could hear a faint chest rattle as he sucked in a shallow breath. Over his shoulder, he heard Austin starting to cough again. Captain? Blanding's voice was small as he glanced back up in the direction they'd come. You don't think there was something uh, up there? Contamination diagnostics checked out negative. Sartoris shot back too quickly, he realized. That's what you said, isn't it, Greeley? Greeley gave a weak nod, tried to answer, and thought better of it. His skin had taken on a decidedly green shade, and it shone with a thin, oily layer of sweat. 
A moment later, he sank down to his knees next to the box of electronics and lowered his head until it was almost touching the floor. By the time they arrived back on the barge, Vesic and Blandings had started coughing as well. Hang on, I'm coming. Zahero followed the 2-1-B through the med bay to the bed where a guard named Austin crouched with his head between his knees. He'd come in along with another guard and a pair of maintenance engineers. Waste had triaged his new patients expertly, assigned them beds, and started working up Austin, who appeared to be the worst off. Thanks, Zahara told the 2-1-B. Go check on the others. Sitting down on the bed next to Austin's, she didn't wait for the guard to acknowledge her. How are you feeling? He looked up at her stonily. I want to talk to the droid. My surgical droid is otherwise engaged with your co-workers, Zahara said. What happened to you up there? What do you care? It's my job. How many people were up there with you? Austin didn't respond. Twin rivulets of thick yellow snot were leaking out of his nose, down either side of his upper lip, and he smeared them away with his sleeve and started coughing again into his fist, a loose, rib-racking hack. Look, Zahara said. I've got other sick inmates to look after. So how about dropping the attitude so we can focus on getting you better? You're a piece of work, Austin said. You know that? I've been called worse. You and your sick inmates. I bet you... <coughs> he broke off into another coughing fit. Zahara leaning back as the guards sprayed the air around him with microscopic droplets, then pivoted his head to glare at her again. I meant you probably. <coughs> More coughing. Thicker now. You're nothing but a... <coughs> I'll tell you what, she said. You'll have plenty of time to call me names later. How about lying back and letting me have a look at you? Austin shook his head. Send the droid. I don't want you touching me. Don't be an idiot. You're... Send the droid. Enough was enough. Zahara stood up. Suit yourself. Captain Sartorius was right about you, you know? He said as she walked away. Excuse me? You're sweet on cons. I'll bet that if I were some low-life rebel scum, you'd treat me like your only patient. Every sob story that comes along, you're ready with a sympathetic ear. Wow. She almost felt obliged to respond with some representational show of anger. Your captain really knows me well, doesn't he? He's a good man. Sure, she said easily. Killing inmates is a real feather in his cap. Austin gave a quick series of explosive coughs, then cleared his throat and whooped out a ragged breath. That wasn't your call to make. Zahara turned around to face him again. Let me tell you something about your heroic captain. He was in trouble long before what happened with Von Longo. Even the warden knew it. Regardless of what he might have once been, he's now a burned-out wreck of a human being, a claustrophobic sociopath with... She broke off when she realized Austin was grinning at her, a narrow, vulpine grin. She was only confirming everything he'd suspected about her. What Captain Sartoris did to Longo here in my med bay was just the end product of a long and messy downward slide. And that's when you really started to like him, right? Austin asked, 
that hard smile still wrapped across his otherwise sickly face. You like them hurt and needy. That really flicks your switch, doesn't it? She felt her neck beginning to turn red and was suddenly sure that Austin could see it too. If you say so. I'm not the only one. Dr. Cody? A synthesized voice called out. Are you available? She turned and saw the 2-1-B gesturing to her from the other side of the infirmary. On the bed beside it, one of the new patients, she thought it was the other guard, Vesic, appeared to be having a seizure. The two engineers and the trooper who had accompanied him were all sitting up watching with a mixture of dismay and revulsion. On my way. By the time she arrived at his bedside, Vesic had started to slide off his mattress, despite the surgical droid's efforts to restrain him. The guard's face had gone a nearly translucent shade of pale, and his eyes were rolled back in his head while the rest of his body flopped and twitched erratically, as if responding to some high-voltage electrical current. Then, without any warning, he fell on his back, his mouth bursting open to emit an uncertain irk sound, followed by an almost solid spray of bright arterial blood that shot straight up into the air like a geyser. Watch out. Zahara raised her hands to shield herself and the engineers sitting next to her. On the other side of the bed, the 2-1-B continued to hold Vesic in place. When it looked up, she saw that its cowling and visual sensors were covered with blood. Vesic collapsed backward on the stained sheets, as if the act of vomiting had drained all the fight from him. Get him in the bubble. Zahara said. All of them, the guards, engineers, whoever came off that destroyer, get them sealed off from the other patients, now. The 2-1-B's sensors had already cleared themselves and reflected back at her attentively. Yes, yes Dr. Dr. Cody. Run labs on them. A full talk screen. Find out what they were exposed to up there. Anything else? She forced herself to stop and think, taking inventory in her mind. We better let the warden know what's going on. He'll want updates. Right away. Wait, Zahara said. I'll take care of that myself. She didn't wait around as the surgical droids started giving instructions to the engineers. Their faces were freckled with Vesic's blood, and they looked frightened now, more scared than sick. You, she said, looking at the name on his badge. Greeley, how many men went aboard the Star Destroyer? Two teams of five. Greeley said. But where are the other five men? They came back before us. On the bed, Vesic made a throaty groaning sound and shifted his weight, rolling onto his side so that his back was to them. The other two men stared at him with matching expressions of encroaching panic as the droid led them away. Hey, Doc, what's the good word? She turned and saw that Gat, the devish, had left his bed and made his way over to Seer. He was gazing at the guard on the blood-stained bunk, fingering his broken horn with the unconscious compulsion of someone prodding a loose tooth with his tongue. Nothing you need to worry about. I heard you say something about the bubble. I'm just playing it safe, Zahara said, until we get a better handle on things. The devish cocked his head and then nodded. If there's anything I can do, uh, let me know, okay? Thanks, Gat. I'll keep that in mind. Without thinking, she put one hand on his shoulder and felt another pair of eyes on her from across the room. Austin was glaring at her and smiling. 
She walked back to her workstation, thumbed the console, and watched as Cloth's face materialized on the screen in front of her. Some kind of contrast malfunction had rendered the image too bright, making it appear bleached and monochromatic. He was sitting at his desk, the viewport behind him partly eclipsed by the massive bulk of the Star Destroyer's underside directly above. It blocked out more stars than she had expected and gave the odd appearance of having arrived at their destination. Dr. Cody, what is it? I'm down here with five of the men from the boarding party, she said. How are they? Not good. I'm placing them in the quarantine bubble. Where's Captain Sartoris? In his quarters, I assume. But Dr. Cody... I'll need him up here too, she said. What about the other five? That's just it. Cloth shook his head, and she realized for the first time that the pallor on his face had nothing to do with the contrast of the monitor screen. The second team never came back. Sartoris was dreaming when the knock on the door awakened him. In the dream, he was still wandering around the destroyer alone. The rest of his party, Austin, Vesic, Armitage, the engineers and troopers, was dead and gone. Something aboard the destroyer had picked them off one by one. Each man's departure had been marked by a scream, followed by a sickening crack that Sartorius seemed to feel as much as hear. Sartorius kept moving, trying to ignore a nagging itch that had spread across the skin of his stomach like a rash. He knew it was only a matter of time before the beast, whatever it was, came after him. It wouldn't be long before he glimpsed its true face, if it had one. Maybe it didn't. Perhaps it was simply sickness personified. A brainless and ravenous void that sucked in life. A maze of hallways stood ahead of him and Sartorius's pace faltered. He was lost, and he knew it. He wasn't even sure if he was heading toward the thing or away from it. The skin around his abdomen itched worse, and he stopped to scratch it and felt something impressed on the flesh itself, like a tattoo or a mesh of wrinkles. His dream self tugged up his shirt tail from his pants, and he looked down at the skin of his side and saw that there was in fact something printed on his side, some kind of map a map of the Star Destroyer. The diagrams disappeared into his flesh, and he realized he'd have to open himself up to read it. Stealing himself, he hooked the first two fingers of his right hand and raked them as hard as he could into the muscle above his hip. Ignoring the dry ice spike of pain and thrusting in deeper to peel back the outer tissue layer, the fat came loose from his flank with a sickening ease. Blood gushed out of his side, hot and steaming, running down his legs and filling up his boots. When he woke up, a scream at his lips, the knocking had turned into pounding. He sat up, shivered with a kind of all-over wetness, and for a queasy instant, thought he was still bleeding. But the hot, sticky moisture clinging to his skin was only perspiration. It pasted his hair to his brow and stuck his uniform to his back. The only part of his body that wasn't wet was the inside of his mouth. It was bone dry. Opening the door of his quarters, he saw two guards in orange biohazard suits and masks standing there, looking like refugees from his interrupted dream. Captain Sartoris? He blinked. What's this? Sir, we've been instructed to bring you down to the infirmary. Why? 
A pause, then... Orders, sir. Whose? Sartorius asked, and made it easy for them. The Warden's? Or Dr. Cody's? The guards exchanged a glance. The glare off their face shields made it hard to say which one responded. I'm not sure, sir, but... Who gave the order to gear up? Sartorius asked. But he was already thinking about Austin's cough and Greeley's vomiting. And the others. All of them. Too late, he wished he'd conferred with Warden Cloth about the other party before going back to his quarters. It had been a small act of defiance that had blown up in his face, another poor decision in a long and self-destructive chain of questionable choices. He ought to have reported back first. Swallowed his agitation and just done it. Better come with us, sir. Sartorius took a step forward to try to identify the men inside the masks. I feel fine, he said. And although this was the truth, it felt like a lie, maybe because of the guard's reaction. When he came forward, they both took one big step back. How are Austin and the engineer Greeley? Austin's dead, sir. He died about an hour ago. What? Sartorius gaped at them, feeling gut-punched. That's impossible. I was just talking to him. How long had he been up here sleeping? A new thought occurred to him then. A desperate realization of an eventuality he might have to face sooner rather than later. What about Vesic? I really couldn't say, sir. They're all in quarantine, I think. The guard, whom he'd finally identified as a short-timer named Saltern, was taking another step backward. Maybe you better just come up and talk to her yourself. Dr. Cody, you mean? Yes, sir. Sartorius didn't ask any more questions. He came out and felt the guards falling in a step behind him. I can find my way up to the infirmary, Sultan. We were ordered to go with you, sir. In case I bolt, Sartorius thought. And then, maybe I should. But he had told them the truth. He did feel fine. Whatever had happened to the others up on the destroyer hadn't touched him. It was a localized phenomenon, and he wasn't going to let it get to him. He won't have a choice. Take me upstairs he said. I need to talk to Vesic. The Rodians were sick. Trigg looked at them in the cell across from his, sprawled on their bunks, shifting positions only sporadically. As unnerving as it had been when they'd stood there staring at him, Trigg found this new development even more disturbing. Their respiration sounded terrible, a clogged rattle. The coughing was worse. Every so often, one of them would groan or make a low, desperate whine. See anything? Kale asked. Uh-huh. A guard hustled by in an orange biohazard suit, followed by two more. Hey! Trigg pounded on the bars. What's happening out there? The guards just kept moving. Trigg turned and looked back at his brother. What is all this anyway? Kale shrugged. Who knows? He rolled over on his bunk and closed his eyes, and a moment later was fast asleep. Trigg listened to him snore. Hey there, a voice whispered. Trigg leaned forward. It was coming from the cell next to theirs. Hey, he said back, craning his neck, but he couldn't see around the corner. What's happening? 
Your name's Triglongo, isn't it? The voice from the next cell said. Yeah. And your brother? He's Kale, right? That's right, Trig said. What do they call you? The voice ignored his question. Big price on your head, it whispered. Ten thousand credits. Trig didn't answer. Stepping back from the bars, he'd already begun to experience a cold, slithery feeling moving into the pit of his stomach. The voice just kept talking. Ten thousand credits, that's big money. Thing is, nobody's going to collect. Why not? Trig asked. Because I'm the one that offered it, the voice said. And I'm going to kill you both myself. Trigg's entire body went numb. He suddenly realized that he knew that slushy pronunciation, made all the more inarticulate by the way the mouth had been injured when Kale yanked the piercings out. I requested a transfer just so I could be close to you, or Mrs. Voice said. Grease the right wheels, you might say. The second they open these doors, I'm going to rip you and your brother apart with my bare hands. And that's just for starters. Why don't you just shut up? Kale said from his bunk, startling Trig. He hadn't known that his brother was listening or even awake. Miss giggled. Trig realized the gang leader was probably the one he'd heard giggling earlier, when Wembley had come through, bellowing for quiet. How do you want it? He asked. Quick and dirty, I'm guessing. We can do it somewhere private. The guards will find your bodies later, but it might be a while. Not that anybody's gonna care. Not any more than they cared about your old man when Sartoris... Shut up! Kale hissed, springing off his bunk now and joining Trig at the bars, shoving one hand out and groping blindly in the direction of the voice as if there were some way he could swing out and hit Miss. Kale, don't! Trig asked. And by the time Kale seemed to realize what he was doing and tried to jerk his arm back, it was too late. Miss latched onto him now from the adjacent cell, yanking his face up against the bars. Trig could hear him giggling and grunting at the same time, holding on to Kale. In the cell opposite them, one of the torpid Rodians had actually sat up to watch with a vague expression of dazed interest. Just can't wait for it? The voice asked. You want it now? Is that it? You want me to... There was a sharp whack, and the voice broke off with a surprised grunt. Get your meat hooks back inside, Wembley said outside the cell. He was wearing an orange suit and mask, the BLX standing behind him, and when he turned to the brother's cell, Trig could see his own expression reflected back at him in Wembley's face shield. You still got all five? Yeah, Kale said, holding his fingers and flexing them. I think so. He was just messing with me. What's with the suit? Trig asked. For the first time, the guard appeared uncomfortable. The BLX droid standing behind him said, There's been, uh... Just a precaution, Wembley cut in. Nothing to worry about. Is it bad? Nobody knows anything. Dr. Cody's trying to figure it out. Wembley glanced at the Rodians, who were now back on their bunks again, 
coughing and making the quiet whining noise that Trigg had heard before. Looks like your neighbors aren't faring too well either. Too less that you'll have to worry about, I guess. Wembley. Up the hall, somebody shrieked. Wembley spun around with remarkable agility for a man of his size and saw something he didn't like. Without another word, he burst into a shambling run in the opposite direction from whatever he'd seen. Trigg didn't have to wait long to learn what it was. The other guard charging down the hall wore a torn orange suit and no mask. He was still screaming when he slammed face first into the bars of their cell, spraying a glut of blood through. It hit Trigg's face shockingly warm and wet on his cheeks and nose. The sick guard stopped screaming and stood there, eyes wide and totally disoriented. His hands gripped the bars as if forcibly keeping himself upright. Fever blazed from his skin in palpable waves. His breathing was hoarse and raspy, and when Trigg saw the man's chest and shoulders rising to force out a cough, he had the presence of mind to stand back. Only after the guard coughed for what seemed like forever, making no effort to cover his mouth, did he finally seem to realize where he'd landed. You can't stop it, the guard said in a queer, flat voice, the voice of a man talking in his sleep. You just can't. What? Trigg asked. There's no way. The guard shook his head, his lower lip trembling a bit. Then he turned and started walking crookedly up the hallway in the direction where Wembley had gone. Trigg felt his throat go tight. He was suddenly miserably sure he was going to cry. He was scared, that was part of it. But he was also thinking about his father. Somehow, the fact that he didn't know what time it was, it could be midnight down here for all he knew, made it all the worse. A few months earlier, they had been safe at home, the three of them eating breakfast together. How had things gotten so horrible so fast? Hey, Kale said, placing one hand on Trigg's shoulder. Come here. He lifted the hem of his shirt and wiped his brother's face off, the first tears mixing with the guard's blood. It's all right. This is bad, Trigg said. We've been through worse. Trigg couldn't answer. He put his face against his brother's chest and hugged him fiercely. Kale hugged him back. Shh, he said. It's okay. In the next cell, Miss was making noises of his own. He was imitating Trigg's sobs and giggling. In the Rodian cell, one of them had started coughing a steady, listless cough that didn't stop. It just paused long enough for the thing to suck in a breath and keep going. Kale? Trigg asked. Yeah. Do you feel sick? Me? No, I feel fine. His brother shook his head right away. You? No. Trigg drew back and looked Kale in the eye. If you do, though, you have to tell me. Right away, all right? Sure. I mean it. I will, Kale said. But that ain't gonna happen. You don't know that. Trust me, okay? Trigg nodded, but he knew he was right. He sat back down on his bunk with his chin in his hands and stared out into the hall at the coughing Rodians. In the next cell, there was the noise of something taking a breath, rearranging itself into position and letting out a quiet, patient sigh. <sighs> I'm going to get you, kid. 
Ormus whispered. When the time comes, I'll be waiting. Zahara was adjusting the air inflow on her isolation mask when she sensed the 2-1-B approaching behind her. Dr. Cody? Not now. It's important. She hardly heard him. The afternoon had been a dark and bloody blur. All around her, the normally sedate infirmary was packed with sick inmates and guards, every bed occupied and more lying on the floor. The room was filled with the sounds of their coughing, rasping breaths, beeping monitors, and constant cries for help. Whatever the boarding party had brought back with them from the destroyer had spread so quickly throughout the purge that she and Waste had already lost track of the new admits. Captain Sartoris had arrived in the custody of his own guards, and the surgical droid had ushered him directly into the quarantine bubble. Knowing that Sartoris was sitting in there waiting for her to examine him was the extra dose of stress she didn't need right now. The warden had been calling her constantly from his office for updates. He didn't understand why she couldn't at least diagnose what was wrong, if not cure it. Up till now, she'd been too busy just trying to take care of the inmates, triaging them and treating their symptoms which, depending on the species, varied from upper respiratory complaints to fever and GI symptoms to seizures, hallucinations, hemorrhage, and coma. And now the 2-1-B was still standing next to her, awaiting her full attention. Look. Sahara said. Whatever it is, it's just going to have to... It's Gat. He's dead. Zahara turned around and frowned. What? He just had a seizure and went into respiratory arrest. I'm sorry for interrupting. I just thought you'd want to know. Zahara took in a slow breath, held it for a beat, and nodded before letting it out. She followed the droid across the infirmary to Gat's bed. The devish was lying on his side, pale-skinned, eyes open already glazed. She looked at the vacant face, the broken horn and slackened jaw. Whatever had been good inside him, the rare element of decency and humor that had made him unique among her patients, was totally gone. She bent down and closed his eyes. And the warden is waiting to talk to you again, Waste said, actually managing to sound regretful. Zahara knew what Cloth was going to ask. How bad is it? She asked the droid. Twelve fatalities so far. Including the entire boarding party. With the exception of Captain Sartorus and ICO Vesic. Yes. And they're both still in the bubble. That's correct. Otherwise, the pathogen has already spread throughout the purge. I'm following several reports of symptoms from all over general population. Inmates, guards, support staff. Rate of infection is nearly 100%. Our medication and supplies will hold out for another week if nothing changes. However, the droid paused, its voice modulating into a more confiding tone. I have been unable to isolate the molecular makeup of this particular strain. Dr. Cody? Yes. As you know, my programming regarding infectious disease is quite wide in scope. And yet this current contagion is like nothing I've ever seen. The droid's voice lowered further, the synthesized equivalent of a whisper. It seems as though the individual organisms are using quorum sensing to communicate with one another inside the host. Meaning what? Individual cells don't activate to full virulence until they reproduce to such numbers that the host can't combat them. In other words, Zahara said, when it's too late. That's correct. At this point, I'm not even convinced that our isolation gear is an effective barrier. 
Zahara looked down self-consciously at the orange suit that she'd put on immediately after placing the boarding party into quarantine. She didn't like wearing it, didn't like the message that it sent to the inmates who had already been exposed, but there wasn't any choice. She couldn't help anyone if she was sick or dead. And the droid was right, of course. As of now, it was impossible to say whether the suits and masks were helping. Guards who had suited up immediately were already coming in sick, but she herself showed no sign of infection. Not yet, anyway, a grim voice inside her amended. From across the infirmary, an alarm went off, a steady high-pitched whine indicating that one of her patients had gone into full arrest. Zahara started to respond to it, and then another alarm went off, and then a third. There's got to be some kind of equipment malfunction, she thought dazedly. But she could see from here that wasn't the case. Her patients were dying faster now, dying all around her, and the only thing she could do was sign the appropriate paperwork afterward. I'll take care of this. You need to talk to the warden. The warden can wait. By the time she got to the bedside, though, it was already too late. The inmate had collapsed, the monitors feeding back a steady, helpless whine. It seemed to be coming from everywhere at once. The patient to her right was having a seizure, and his alarm went off, too. For the hundredth time that day, Zahara wondered what Captain Sartoris's party had run across up inside the destroyer. She knew only one person she could ask. The alarm was going off in the negative airspace of the quarantine bubble just before she slipped inside. Looking in, she saw Sartoris standing over Vesic's bed while Vesic gaped up at him. The younger guard's face had gone so white that Zahara could see the fine blue veins tracing beneath his jaw and chin, rising up his cheeks. She ran the rest of the way, letting the flap seal shut behind her with a barely audible flap. What happened? You're the doctor, Sartoris snapped. You tell me. He was stable just a few minutes ago. She checked the monitors. Vesic's pulse was gone, his oxygen saturation plunging and blood pressure crashing hard. Did you do something to him? Sartoris glared at her. Me? Hand me that foil blister pack. The other one. She tore it open, withdrew the breathing tube and smeared it with lubricant. Tilt his head back. Sartoris moved stiffly, watching as she eased the tube down Vesic's throat, going in blind. It hit an obstruction somewhere, and when she tried to advance it, his chest heaved, and he made a gagging sound in the pit of his chest. It was a sound she'd come to know well over the last few hours. Watch yourself, she said as dense red fluid started to spout up the tube, pouring out of his mouth. She reached for suction, but couldn't see far enough to run the tube where it needed to go. All the while, she could feel Sartoris hovering over her shoulder, literally breathing down her neck, and had to make a deliberate effort to ignore him. Working almost entirely by feel, she repositioned the tube and heard the first rasping noises of Vesic hungrily slurping up oxygen then swabbed his face and taped the tube into place to keep it from slipping. She took a step back and made herself take a series of deep breaths, holding each one for a five count until she began to feel steady again. Is he going to make it? Sartoris asked. Not for much longer. Not like this. She turned to face him. I need to speak to you. I was just leaving. Zahara gave him an incredulous look. 
Excuse me. I came to talk with Vesic. Sartorius shot a glance at the tube taped into place around the guard's mouth. Not much chance of that now. You can't leave. Who's going to stop me? His eyebrow hiked up. You? You're in quarantine because you're one of the primary carriers of this infection, Zahara said. You need to stay here. Sartorius eyed her levelly, taking her measure. The cold indifference in his face was unlike anything she'd ever encountered before, as if it were permanently etched beneath the features, across the very bones of his face. I'm going to make this very clear, he said. You have no authority over me, and there's nothing you can do for me or my men or any of these inmates. You're useless, Dr. Cody, and you know it. If you were one of my guards, you'd be gone by now, if you were lucky. Otherwise, you'd be dead. Look, she started. Save it for your precious inmates, he said, standing up and starting to walk toward the sealed hatch. I've already heard enough. Jareth, wait. At the sound of his first name, he stopped in his tracks. And when he turned around and saw her expression, a grin twisted like barbed wire across his face. You're scared stiff, aren't you? That's got nothing to do with this. You ought to be. They're going to remember you for this. What? You might think you're through with the Empire, but they're not through with you. He glanced outside the bubble, where the 2-1-B was hurrying from bed to bed as the alarms switched on, each one signaling cardiac and respiratory arrest. Every exposed inmate and guard on this barge is going to die in the next few hours. While you stand there in your isolation suit, with your tools and your droids. I hope you enjoy answering questions, because there's going to be plenty of them waiting for you. He reached out with one finger and very gently placed it against her sternum. You'll spend the rest of your life living this down. What did you and your men see up in that Star Destroyer? She asked. What did I see? Sartorius shook his head. Nothing. Not. A. Thing. Sighing, she glanced at the monitor screens alongside the bubble's inner membrane. Your blood work is coming back clean. The infection doesn't seem to be affecting you whatsoever. Benefits of clean living, he said, and shoved past her. If you think you can detain me, you're welcome to try. Otherwise, I'll be up in the warden's office. I'm sure he'll be interested in hearing about how you and your staff are bearing up in this crisis. Before she could move to stop him, he'd already walked out of the bubble and through the medbay. Something about his motives bothered her. There was no way he was going to waste time talking to Cloth just to report on her inefficiency here. How much more trouble could she really get in now anyway? Zahara started to follow him and paused, feeling momentarily lightheaded. She stopped short, scrutinizing herself for any of the symptoms she'd seen in her patients. Her breathing was fine. She felt no pain or lethargy. Was she just feeling the accumulated tension of the whole situation? Waste. Yes, Dr. Cody. The droid didn't look up from the inmate whose bunk it was squatting over, administering some sort of IV injection. I need you to run some blood and cultures. On what patient? Me, she said and held out her arm. The 2-1-B looked at her. But that would require me to violate the isolation barrier of your suit. 
The suits don't work anyway, she said. You said so yourself. I was speculating. Enough. She peeled off the mask and tossed it aside, yanking off the gloves and pulling her sleeve up to expose her bare arm. From the nearby beds, the inmates gazed at her blankly. Dr. Cody, please. Waste's synthesized voice was edging perilously close to panic. My theories regarding the efficacy of the Barda's isolation gear are hardly conclusive. And in any case, the prime directive of my programming plainly states that I am to protect life and promote wellness whenever possible. Just do it, she said, and locked her eyes on the droid's visual sensors, waiting for the needle. Sartorius walked back up the corridor, toward the warden's office with a pair of E-11 blaster rifles. Their stocks collapsed so he could hold one in each hand. He'd taken them off two of the stormtroopers in the hallway. One of them, right outside the infirmary, had attempted to shoot him with it. The guard in question, a man that Sartorius had known for years, had staggered toward him with his helmet in his hand and blood in his eyes, coughing and ranting at the top of his lungs. He didn't seem to have any idea where he was, but kept insisting he get medical care. He said his lungs were filling up with fluid and he couldn't breathe. He was drowning from the inside, but they wouldn't let him into the med bay. Sartorius tried to shove past the man, and the guard pulled the blaster and pointed it at him. When he finally realized who he was about to shoot, the trooper stopped and swayed sideways against the wall. Cap, I'm sorry, I didn't realize. Sartorius grabbed the E-11 from him, switched it to stun, and shot him point blank. Twenty meters later, another stormtrooper came at him and Sartorius had been faster this time, dropping him on sight. It had been like that the rest of the way up. Guards and troopers, in ineffective infection control gear, stumbled up and down the hallway, coughing and puking blood into their masks, reaching out to him for help and begging him for answers to what was going on. Many of them had already collapsed and lay face down on the floor. The farther he went, the more bodies lay in his path. Sartorius stepped over them when he could, other times he stepped on top of them. With every passing meter, the musty fug of bile and stale sweat hanging in the air grew more oppressive. He had never smelled anything like it. If things were this bad up here in the administration level, he couldn't imagine how bad it was down in Genpop. It would be a nightmare down there. He wondered if the warden had already pulled all the remaining guards up from the detainment levels entirely, sealed the whole thing off, and was waiting for the inmates to die. Reaching Cloth's office, he pressed the call switch and waited for an acknowledgement, but the warden's voice didn't answer back. Sir, it's Captain Sartoris. Open up. No reply, but Sartoris knew he was in there. Historically, the warden had faced all crises, big and small, from the sanctity of his office. Today would be no different and the warden had something that Sartorius needed. The access codes to the escape pods. Maintaining the pods had been one of the duties of ICO Vesic, and Sartorius knew that Vesic had the launch codes to activate the pods. And so he had sat next to Vesic's bunk in the quarantine bubble, staring down into Vesic's hallucinating expression, those disoriented rolling eyes, asking him over and over for the launch codes. But Vesic had been less than forthcoming. Eventually, Sartorius had lost patience with the guard. He could be forgiven for that, couldn't he? Wouldn't it make sense that eventually he'd need to apply a bit more pressure 
to help Vesic focus on what he was asking. He hadn't meant to pinch Vesic's nose shut for as long as he had. If Vesic had cooperated, simply snapped out of it for a moment and given him the codes, none of that would have been necessary. All Sartorius had needed was information, the same way he'd wanted information from that old inmate long ago. But the old man hadn't been very forthcoming either. And this was a prison barge after all, wasn't it? Accidents happened. But Vesic wasn't an inmate, a voice inside Sartorius's head whispered. Vesic was one of your own men. And you... He was on his way out anyway, Sartorius muttered, and turned his attention back to the task at hand. Warden Cloth was in there, and he needed to talk to him more urgently than ever. Sartorius was going to convince Cloth that they needed to get off the barge now if there was any chance of staying alive. There was plenty of room in the escape pod for both of them, or just himself, if Cloth didn't see things his way. Warden? Sartorius shouted. Still nothing from the other side of the door. Sartorius glanced down at the blasters in his hands and back at the door. It was probably blast-proof, and shooting his way in would only start a volley of ricocheting bolts that might end up killing him. But he needed to get the access codes sooner rather than later, if... Then the door slid open, all by itself. At this point, Sartorius hadn't been expecting it, and he actually hesitated for a moment, peering inside the chamber. Cloth's office appeared empty, the hollow mural desert scene, an abandoned console, the view outside unobstructed. Sartorius stepped inside, and the smell hit him hard. It was the same ammoniac odor that had accumulated in the corridors outside, only a more concentrated version, and he cupped his hand over his nose and mouth, laboring to suppress his gag reflex. Captain? Something gargled from the other side of the console. How nice to see you. Sartorius took another step and looked forward, then down. Warden Cloth was lying on the floor below his console, curled on his side in the fetal position, in a pool of something grayish-red. When he saw Sartorius standing over him, he lifted himself up on both elbows and took a raspy, shaking breath. Webs of sticky fluid dribbled from his nose and chin. The sickness had stripped away any remaining affectation of toughness and cruelty, leaving only the trembling, skinned thing that Sartorius had known was inside him all along. I've been watching the monitors, he said. This infection from the Star Destroyer... <coughs> he coughed again. It's spreading too quickly to stop. Would you agree? Yes, sir. Then we are left with only one choice. <sighs> Cloth sucked in another labored, snorkeling breath. We have to abandon ship. My thoughts exactly. <clears throat> you'll, you'll help me to the escape pond. <clears throat> he said between hacking coughs. That's SOP. I'll make my full report from there. Imperial corrections won't question my decision. They can access all the data from the infirmary afterward. They'll see 
I had no choice. <coughs> Sartoris had to smile. Even an extremist, the man was still thinking about how to cover himself in front of his superiors. You have the access codes for lunch? He asked. Cloth coughed and nodded, and coughed harder, the force of it making veins bulge like twisted blue worms in his temples. I think, Sartoris said, that you should tell me now. The warden stopped coughing, his eyes narrowed, then widened. Sartoris was pointing both of the E-11s at Cloth's face, close enough that he knew Cloth would be able to smell the tinge of ozone that still clung to their barrels and see that Sartorus had switched them back to kill. <clears throat> You're an animal, Cloth said. I should have relieved you from duty when I had the chance. It's not too late, Sartorus said, holding the blasters steady. You could make it your last official act as warden. Put those down. You'll need both hands to help me to the pod. I think I can manage. Sartoris said. After you give me the codes. I don't have much choice, do I? Sartoris regarded him blandly. I suppose you could try lying to me, but I deal with liars and con artists every day, so under the circumstances, I wouldn't recommend it. The codes are already imprinted here. I couldn't alter them if I tried. Cloth handed him a data card his hand trembling only slightly, and held Sartoris's gaze steadily as he did so. Captain? Yes. There's a subsection of the Imperial Corrections Psychological Profile exam known as the Vec-Headley Battery. It's specifically skewed to indicate any underlying psychopathological attitudes in the applicant... <coughs> with the understanding that such things might come in handy in service to the Empire. His tongue came out and moistened his upper lip. Would you like to know how you scored on your VHB, Captain Sartorius? I think we both already know the answer to that, sir, Sartorius said, and squeezed both triggers. The effect at close range was nothing short of spectacular. Warden Cloth's entire cranial vault sheared away in a dense cloud of scarlet, gristle, and bone. His neck and shoulders flopped sideways, torqued on some invisible axis with the leftover momentum of the energy blast, and then landed with a wet splat, skidding backward in the spattered reservoir of blood. Sartoris pocketed the data card and turned to face the still open door. That was when he saw the young guard in the isolation suit standing out in the corridor. Staring at him slack-jawed, his fever-blotched face gone abruptly pale so the blisters stood out like stars. When the guard realized that Sartoris was looking at him, he jerked both hands up and backed into the hallway behind him, his chin going up and down trying to yammer out words. Captain, you j just shot Warden Cloth. Did him a favor. Sartoris said, taking note of the guard's runny nose and the fever sores clustering around his lips. You want one? The guard looked as if he'd just lost control of his bladder and bowels simultaneously. Get out of here. Pointing with one of the blasters. Go that way. 
The guard nodded, turned, and fled, boots clattering, rasping audibly for breath. Sartoris wished him well. He went the other direction and started making his way to the escape pod. And there you have it, Star Wars travelers. If that wasn't a cosmic roller coaster, I don't know what is. The suspense is thicker than the mist of Dagobah, and my excitement is rivaling a Wookiee war. We're switching things up a bit for this series, so no quote on these episodes. We're focusing on pure, unfiltered Star Wars goodness. After all, this burst of stellar content is our way of sprinkling some Halloween goodness for all of our Star Wars enthusiasts. So until the stars align again, keep those lightsabers glowing, and I will see you on the Sith side. Thank you for listening to Star Wars Audio Archive. Join us next time for more Star Wars adventures. If you would like to listen to other episodes of the show, you can follow us on your favorite podcast directly. If you enjoyed the show, we greatly appreciate a five-star review. Once again, thank you for listening, and may the Force be with you. Sway was created by Kenai Shed and is a production of Pick Film Media. This show was produced by Quinn McDaniel and was distributed by Swaycast Networks. Star Wars Death Trooper was read to you by Rick Washington. Sound designed by Theodore Thompson. I'm your host, Kyle, and we will see you next time in a galaxy far, far away.